Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Hi, J.D. Um, how are you feeling? Great. Thank you. I'm, I'm feeling great. How about you? I'm, I'm alarmed that you're feeling great because I know for a fact that you're still unwell. So if no, you're feeling I don't want to great, talk I, about my I don't want to talk about my myriad health problems. And I am all right. That's fine. I totally understand you not wanting to talk about them. This is going to be an hour of escapism for you. <laughs> you, can, you can. This is this is your this is your safe space. This is your, your little moment out of your reality. Well, I I, I don't. I I I'm. <sighs> Now you you're making me talk about it now, so that the audience no, knows what we're talking about. No, 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 no. We, I we got, owe no one anything, JD. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I got COVID after Christmas, as I think a lot of listeners know, and I was pretty sick with COVID, and that morphed into some other problem <laughs> sicknesses. I feel old, and I feel kind of. I, I have just been functionally ill since Christmas, and it's now what January 19th. So that's a long time of 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 being ill and uh and I'm getting a little bit tired of it. But 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 covid morphed into some other like genuine sicknesses. So I'm just not not I'm just getting a little frustrated with myself here. I understand. But you're you're bearing it well and this is a this is a school of conversion, JD. <laughs> this is this is how you unpack the camel to fit through the eye of the needle. It's oh, right. is that so? You become like the little ones. You okay? But how are you doing? Let's talk about you. I want to talk about you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. We're um, there's there's interesting things happening in the world, but not at such a pace that we're unable to keep total track of them. I'm wearing very comfortable trousers right now. Um, it's especially snowing. comfortable trousers, or that's just something you say, or what is that? No, I. I mean, I'm just I'm thinking off the top of my head. You asked me how I'm doing, so I'm okay. You know, at the moment, I'm experiencing com- the comfort of well-fitting trousers. Uh, it's snowing in Washington, D.C., which is lovely. I have a two-year-old daughter who's seeing snow for the first time. And yeah, that's lovely. It, it Something my wife and I observed and remarked to ourselves is uh, she watches the Disney films, of course, mm-hmm. yeah. because children do. And so she's familiar with snow as a fictional concept that, you know, in in the in the animated world, there's this thing called snow. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all like sorts a, of other things happen. Like when Belle, you know, the the like one of the most iconic scenes of Beauty and the Beast is when Belle and the Beast have the little snowball fight and all that. Right, and she's dressed like Pope Ratzinger, and you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, with the red, with the fur and the red, and yeah, she has a rosette on um, basically. So that, and she's she watches the Frozen movies, and so she's familiar. And so, but what's interesting is when she first experienced the snow and saw that it was real, and she then started running around the yard looking for Disney characters and calling them by name. Oh, that's really cute. And I built her a snowman and she stood in front of it with this sort of, you know, frozen look of both joy, anticipation, and kind of fear. And I couldn't, and we, my wife and I realized that the, the expectation gap between snow being real and snowmen come to life is basically, it's the, it requires the same sort of, Right. You know, logical leap to go from, yeah. well, wait, snow is real. So presumably things you make out of it come to life because I've only ever seen those two things in the same fictional context. So if one is real, the other presumably is too. Sure. So she's very excited right now at the prospect that the the snowman that I have built in the front yard, which looks a lot like Mike Dicka, um, may, may, come, may come to life and perhaps, you know, start training her in how to tackle. She hasn't yet come to the realization that that won't be. No, and she also doesn't know who Mike Ditka is, so I think her expectations yeah. are probably also tempered by that. Yeah. Okay. But that's how I'm doing. Well, that's really very lovely. I, I'm so glad you shared that with me. I I, uh, I want to talk about other stuff, but that's that's very lovely. Uh, okay. <laughs> what other stuff would you like to talk about? <laughs> I mean, I just mean you know, like there's. I'm I'm so excited about the things that we have to talk about today. That's all I'm doing. Okay. I'm excited okay. to find out what they are. Well, great. What I want to talk about today. Because I just think it's such an interesting story, and I'm proud of the pillars reporting on it. But I think it's it it it's totally out of the realm of most of our ecclesial experience. I want to talk about the death of Father Josiah Kokel. Is that a story that you have paid attention to? Ah, uh, it's a story I have read more than once. Yes. Yeah. So this is a story that we reported on through our Latin American correspondent Edgar Beltran. 
Father Josiah Coco was a Kenyan-born priest who had long been a missionary in Venezuela, uh, who 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 whose body was found dead earlier this month. And um, why don't you take it from there and tell people about it? Because it's really a fascinating story. It is. Well, it's fascinating. It's also and Edgar think, has done some tragic. really, I mean, genuinely important reporting to uncover. Some serious yes, issues. This is yeah. this is you know I I, this I is, love Edgar did when, not just do a write up here. Edgar Edgar has done no, some very serious reporting. He was doing investigative work on this. This is yeah. I, I loathe the 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 sort of way the word exclusive is thrown around with, mm-hmm. um, to sort of mean all sorts of silly things, usually trivial. But in this case, I mean Edgar has done reporting that no one else has done. Like yeah, he is he is reporting a story that no one else was aware of, and in a way that has information and having spoken to people that simply no one else has been able to. So this is this is the real stuff. Um Father Josiah, as you as you mentioned, has been a missionary priest in Venezuela for for a number of years now. Um and he his work, which is sort of out in the provincial regions, not in the city, um he's been working especially with the Waaros um people of the of the Amakuro del- Delta. Um yeah, and so they it's are, like a it's like the swampy region of Effectively yeah. northeastern Venezuela, and he's been there bordering since Brazil, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. And um, they are, as is so often the case in regions like that, a, a heavily displaced and um, persecuted people. When I say persecuted, I don't mean you know um, they have trouble getting to the voting booth on election day. I mean there are reports of you know lots of human trafficking going on. Um, being driven into refugee camps and over the border, mass sterilization of indigenous women, uh, you know, really horrific conditions. Um, organized crime, uh, organized yeah. crime syndicates, um, tricking or deceiving the Warana people and into thinking that they will have jobs in Trinidad and Tobago, taking them to Trinidad and Tobago where they turn them into um, prostitutes or, uh, or, or force them to participate in drug trafficking, um, heavily explo- people who are heavily exploited. Yes in the worst of all possible ways. And um, Father Josiah has has been a particular advocate working with, I mean, he learned the, the native language, which is not a dialect which almost, spoken by a lot of people. Almost no one know, knows. Yeah. yeah, almost nobody knows. But he learned, he's, he was accepted among those people as one of their own, basically. They, they knew him very well. He was um, a, ma- a massive outspoken advocate for and defender of, of them. And as you do when you highlight the mass oppression and including trafficking and other abuses of of a people you make a lot of enemies and he did and so the the circumstances of um his death were this his body was found on january 2nd hanging from a mangrove tree and um in it right next to a stream um from which boats are launched full of um the warano people to take them to trinidad and tobago to to, to traffic right. them. Like basically from a human trafficking yeah. hub yeah. is where they found his body. Um, his, you know, they, it was very quickly ruled a suicide. Uh, he didn't have his phone or wallet on him. Both of those were back at his house, which was some distance away. He was well known. About an hour away. About an hour away. And he was well known um, for just sort of leaving the house with a Bible on his bike and yeah. going to be with his people as a good priest does. And, you know, it was very quickly ruled a suicide. But the thing about him having apparently hung himself is, you know, he lined up all of these projects, including public speaking engagements, radio, all sorts of stuff to talk about um, the the plight of the Waro. And it it seems unlikely he would be making as many forward looking plans as he had if he was um, planning on killing himself. And and the other thing is, you know, he was found in this, as you say, near a near a sort of stream, a trafficking um, stream, a trafficking point, a trafficking stream hung from a mangrove tree in a very swampy area, and his an shoes hour from were his complete. house, and he hadn't left with hour. his car. I mean, he left right. or his bike. He was frequently he wasn't with his bike either. But I mean, that yeah. would be a very he was long just bike his ride. body was just there, and his right. shoes were clean, and there was no mess on the front of his shirt. And or anything. this is the part that Edgar uncovered. So what happened after his body was found is the government immediately said, like twelve hours later, they said this was a suicide. And, um, you know, people have said that's not right. But what Edgar did is he talked to people who were at the scene of the crime who discovered that um, there were all these abnormalities. His clothes, a, a mangrove tree is, I guess, very dirty. I, a, a mango it's tree gross. is, yeah, I didn't know that, but it's, it's very dirty. Well, you know how palm trees have that sort of, you know, flaky, disintegrating, sort of stringy bark on them at times or some no. kinds of palm trees do? Okay, well, never mind. 
We'll go no further than to say you can't climb a mango tree and come away clean. Like it's gross. Yeah. Like they, so the, the whole the whole point of a mangrove, which is sort of where mango he was, right? mango tree, right? Not mangrove. Yes, but I keep saying mangrove, but mango, right? I keep saying mangrove. I mean mango. Sorry, but the whole part of this area is very swampy. Like the whole the 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 flora and fauna of this ecosystem is in a constant state of decay. Like that yeah. is that is the nature of the thing. Like, that makes sense. So anyway, so Edgar talked to people whose bodies were there. So the government declared it a suicide within like twelve hours. But Edgar talked to people who said. This does not appear to be a suicide. His clothes were perfectly clean. Although he was in the swamp, his shoes were sparkling white. Um, again, he had made all these plans. He hadn't exhibited any signs of depression. He had made like- There was no ladder or stool or other means by which he might have hung himself from his right. tree. And, and again, how did he get there? His bike wasn't with him and it was an hour by car over very treacherous roads from the city where he lived. So how did he get there? So- um, so what it uncovers basically, or what these questions call into to, to question is not only, you know, was this priest killed by organ, an organized crime syndicate for speaking out on behalf of an, an oppressed people, which seems almost certainly true, but that the that agents of the Venezuelan government have effectively covered up for that assassination. Yes. Although that's not surprising. There are parts of the regions in Venezuela where the line between local government um, the army organized crime right. is very blurry and they're often sort of just rival power bases that mm -hmm. will cooperate or compete with each other as is necessary for everyone to continue getting what they want. So the idea that saying, you know, in a sort of Beckett Beckett way, this troublesome priest just had to go and mm -hmm. nobody has any particular interest in seeing it do anything other than just sink out of sight and have no one ask any questions. Yeah. Yeah, the situation of the of the intermingling between organized crime and government, both with um with a sort of disdain for the churches um, speaking out for human rights, reminded me actually of the situation in many parts of northern Nigeria, from which we've done reporting, where um, you know you have th sort of three factions of violence. You have um, Islamic militants in the form of Boko Haram. Who are aiming at a kind of spread of his of, of Islamic Sharia rule and the mass conversion of Christians and these kinds of forced conversion of Christians, and then you have armed gangs of young men who are unemployed and often displaced who commit acts of violence who are involved in organized crime who are involved in in trafficking and 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 those two groups are intermingled significantly because the same young men who might work for Boko Haram on, during the week doing violence will then on the weekend sort of gather up together to commit serious and significant crimes. And then in addition to those two groups, which are somewhat intermingled, you have uh, basically a big portion of the of the Nigerian military selling, you know, rockets off the back of trucks to both of them and small arms off the back of trucks to both of them and ammunition off the back of trucks to both of them. And so you have this sort of very intermingled and porous web of organized crime motivated political terrorist crime and then and then and then government yeah i think it can be usefully said of of certainly regions of both northern nigeria and also of um venezuela they were in failed state territory yeah that i think that's right the, the rule of law does effectively does not exist their their rival power bases violence is pretty much there to be exercised by those who have the power to get away with it so the death of this priest is remarkable you know um first of all i i i, I Go ahead. Please. Sorry, I was just going to a little extra context around you know why, why sadly the only place you're likely to read about Father Josiah's death is is Edgar's report is of course it, the Holy See is itself in a very tricky spot with the Venezuelan yeah. government. Um, the Venezuelan government has been blocking Episcopal appointments to major dioceses and archdioceses, which it, it has, has a kind of a, a kind of a. a, a uh, a de facto treaty with the Holy See, which gives it some approval. I, I think it's over... actually a formal concordat. I, okay. I think, yeah, which I gives mean, it, it predates the current regime. Yeah, that's um, right. But the reason the I say Holy... de facto is because the question of who the Venezuelan government is is, a, is its own is its own question. Well, yes, but, is yeah. But the Venezuelan government has the right to to approve the appointment of diocesan bishops in Venezuela, and so uh, as we've reported before, you have these long stalled appointments where. The Holy See is able to appoint people apostolic administrators of dioceses, which is a kind of temporary leadership position, um, and that's what they kind of how they kind of get around the stonewalling from the Venezuelan government of the appointment of diocesan bishops who they don't like. Yeah, and so I mean to be clear, I'm not suggesting that the Holy See is aware of the circumstances of Father 
Josiah's death and is sort of you know saying, well, we're just not going to mention that. Uh, but I mean, there are the Holy See has its own problems with the Venezuelan government, so there are all kinds of reasons why they might not be aware or might have been given poor information about what happened to this priest. Um, and and there would be reasons why it would be potentially very problematic for them to make too big a deal of it in in you know trying to look into it and ascertain what happened because that could just simply put other people at risk. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it because it sounds super worthy, but. I mean, it's not about us. It's about Edgar in this case. So I'm happy to say it, which is, you know, you get a lot of this sort of, you know, um, American, especially um, sort of, you know, preening keyboard warrior, you know, oh, we're journalists, man. We're changing the world. We're, you know, we're so important. We're right on the front lines. You know, we're there in the gallery at Congress every day, putting our necks on the line in case someone sends a nasty tweet to me or whatever. Like, <laughs> this is real journalism that puts, you know, that, that entails real physical danger. Like yeah, Edgar yeah, was right. doing real reporting. This wasn't Edgar, like you know, googling stuff. This was right. him talking to real people in a dangerous part of the world where dangerous things happen to good people. Um, right? Yeah, this is the real thing. So this priest was killed effectively for his outspoken solidarity with the with this indigenous group. Is he a martyr? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you the sort of the the, the immediate sort of de facto categorization of someone of martyrs if they're killed in Odium Fidei. Right. Um, and there is, I, I, we don't know enough. I mean, we know, we, we know that he was, his death was ruled a suicide. We know that all of the um, data points around the discovery of his body and the circumstances of his death suggest that he was in fact murdered, not, um, not committing suicide. Uh, but the exact who killed him and motivated by what we, we don't, we don't and we know. probably won't. I mean, so what's what's happened is that um, his order, he's a he's a member of something called the Consolata Fathers, which is a kind of uh, an East African religious order that we don't see very often uh, here in the United States. But he's a member of the Consolata Fathers, and his order has asked the Venezuelan government very carefully uh, for an impartial autopsy. So the Venezuelan government said, oh, we did an autopsy. You know, in the 12 hours after his death, they said, we did an autopsy, and that's how we know it was a suicide. Um, but we can't release to you the results of that autopsy, um, and we we won't release to you any other information about it. And you know, of course, his order has sort of cried foul on that as delicately as they can. And other people who work for um, who who advocate for indigenous people in Venezuela have cried foul, and journalists have cried foul. But all those people have to be really, really careful because they're in danger of you know sort of not only being arrested but sort of disappearing in the middle of the night. They're treading on two things. They're both accusing um, an organized crime syndicate in the jungles of Venezuela of murder and accusing um, a dictatorship government, which operates outside the rule of law, uh, of covering it up. And uh, both of those things are pretty dangerous. It's the, it's the kind of thing that gets you hung from a mango tree. <laughs> right, exactly. That's exactly that's exactly right. And uh, we're doing that right now because we don't care. We don't live there, and I don't think the Venezuelan government is going to come to my house or your house head. Um, no, but I mean, Edgar is... But Edgar is much more courageous than we because Edgar is Venezuelan um, yes. and has taken real and serious risks uh, to report these things. Um, but everyone who's doing so is doing so with a certain degree of caution. And Edgar himself is taking certain precautions about the way in which he's reported this and especially the way in which he's aimed to protect his sources. But um, but it does not seem likely that the Venezuelan government is going to approve the request of, of people close to the priest, of, of Father Kokel, to... Um, have a, a second autopsy or an autopsy by an independent entity or release his body for examination or uh, release the crime scene photos or anything else which would undermine the suicide hypothesis of um, people, you know, proffered as the official ruling by people in government who are likely, um, you know, on the take um, or completely enmeshed in the in the Venezuelan crime syndicate, which seems absolutely to have killed Father Coco. Yes. That's that's a story that not enough people have read, in my opinion. It's a story, and it's a story. I think um, it's a story. I think that not enough people have read because, not just because um, you know it contextualizes our minor problems, or because um, you know it makes us appreciate what we have. No, because this but man lived. I a just think life we should appreciate the life of holiness and, of heroic yeah, virtue exactly. of this priest. You know, in his own right, I think uh, this is a me, man who deserves to be known and remembered. Is what I mean. And and you know, it's it's interesting because uh, Father Kokel, a priest who 
in many ways was a kind of social advocate activist and in many ways was like working for the protection of of the civil rights of uh, of the of these indigenous people and denouncing both government and organized crime for sterilization and exploitation and human trafficking of them um was taking extraordinary risks to do so and by all accounts was doing so really born out of his priesthood and um, his ministry at the altar. Um, and it's interesting because I, I wonder, I suspect there are people who, if they if he, they hadn't heard he died, but they heard about that kind of ministry, would say, well, that sounds a little liberation theology-ish to me or a little social justice to me. But um, but in, in exactly the appropriate way, I mean, an extraordinary sort of witness of solidarity, of, of priestly solidarity and human solidarity that I, I think we should take a, a, a Take a page from. Yeah, this isn't a guy who's saying, I want you to sing all our welcome and right. make a felt banner. This is a right. guy who's saying, I'm Say, watching I'm gonna put my life women on and children be kidnapped and trafficked out of the country. I'm watching entire peoples be displaced over a border into hellhole refugee camps. Right. And, and I'm in a Brazilian rainforest. I, I'm, if I, you know, I want to minister to these people, I want to learn their language, I become one of them, I want to bring Christ to them, and, and I want to, you know, tell their story where I can because they're not able to tell it themselves. I mean, that is, I, you know, I hope to God that when Christ comes, well, he I, finds me among such people. I think it's a reminder, you know, that social solidarity is, is an expression of the church's identity and that all of us in our, in our parishes, you know, I, I think uh, often of that, uh, of the opening phrases of Gaudium Fest, which are really quite beautiful the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. In a certain way, that that um, expression of solidarity, at the, which is in the in the preamble of Gaudium et Spes, is an examination of conscience, isn't it? Especially for, for people in pastoral ministry, but I think for all of us in sort of parish ministry. Is it true that the joys and hopes, griefs and anxieties of those who are poor or in any way afflicted are my joys and hopes, griefs and anxieties as a follower of Christ? It's 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 an examination of conscience that probably makes me uncomfortable, but it's worth considering. Do I even know what they I don't are? Do so well in the joys. <laughs> Why not? What do you mean? Just better the griefs and anxieties. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. Well, we like anyway. That's kind of you. Anyway, if you haven't read it, check out at our website uh, the story of Father Josiah Kokel because it's just. Um, his life is extraordinary, and um, his death is extraordinary, and we should be praying for the repose of his soul as well. It's a priest worthy of the name. Yeah, that's right. We'll be right back. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the subscribers of The Pillar. Um, PillarCatholic.com is, as you know, Ed, intentionally a subscriber-funded Catholic news project. We aim to be subscriber-funded for this reason. We believe seriously that our mission is to pursue the truth wherever it leads us. And we want to build a relationship with subscribers who want the same thing. We want to build a relationship with people who think that there's a value to truth and transparency and accountability in the life of the church from a perspective of faith and in a community of believers. We love being a subscriber-funded Catholic journalism project because it means that we can do our work and at the same time earn your trust. So if you're a subscriber, thank you so much. If you are not a subscriber, check us out, pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. If you're not a subscriber, just go to pillarcatholic.com and we'll immediately ask you to subscribe. But just go to pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. Um, really, we are subscriber-funded because we think that is the best way to do good journalism. We don't like making um, clickbait for traffic. We don't like the idea of um, of being beholden to anybody else's agenda or having to beg for big dollars from people who come with agendas. We are very, very proud of the fact that we uh, are able to do the work that we do through your belief and support and trust in our journalistic integrity, and we want to keep it up. PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe, and thank you to all of our subscribers. It is true. And, you know, you might, I, we, you know, the people who listen to this podcast are, are a family. I mean, we, we hear from listeners. We, no, we do. We do. That's we do get emails from listeners every week. I, I do, do. I do. I, get, I just would, I, I just, get DMs. I, you know, I get emails. Yeah. Um, most of them say that they feel we should talk about watches more, but <laughs> you know, that's, that's something to, to discuss later. Um, and, and I will just say this, that means a lot to us that, you know, there's, 
there is a there is a community of common purpose, um, and also a faith around this podcast, and that means a lot to both of us. It is a sustaining part of the project that we're trying to do here at the Pillar. But I would just note, if everyone who listened to this show was a paying subscriber, the Pillar we could have do a so lot more. Many more journalists all around the world doing incredible yeah. investigations, speaking truth to power, holding powerful figures to account, telling the stories like Father Josiah's. Yeah, I mean, I, this is we we had the story on Father Josiah because because we have Edgar and you know Edgar is able to. I mean, there are stories probably like that hundreds of Father Josiah's a year that whose, whose names we never know, and I would like to tell more of them. So please subscribe. That's all. We're back, Ed. How are you? I'm still okay, JD. Good. What do you want to talk about? Uh. Well, it's the March for Life today. Should we talk we about that? We are recording this episode on Friday, the 19th of January. And um, uh, I had planned to be at the March for Life, but I'm not there for two reasons, actually. One, one, got, your head might explode if you tried to get on a plane right I now. I have various kinds of sicknesses. And two, um, I got a text from my airline the other day saying that my flight was being rerouted or my, my route was being rerouted. My ticket was being rerouted because... I didn't have a direct flight to DC. I had a connecting flight through Chicago and my flight from Denver to Chicago had been canceled because it would have been on a Boeing 737 max and it had been grounded for inspection. So uh, United was trying to like, you know, rejigger my flight or whatever. And I kept getting texts saying, we're still trying, we're still trying, we're still trying. And between that and being sick, it just wasn't, didn't, didn't happen. But, um, you well, know, it's a beautiful day for it here in DC. There's there's snow falling in a very picturesque way. It's not too cold. It's it's a solid zero degrees, um, which that is you know quite cold. No zero degrees Celsius. Zero oh, degrees real. We don't real use Celsius. Real temperature. What? Okay. Um, Fahrenheit makes no sense. I'm sorry. No, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this for a second because you've said that, and that's. Fahrenheit is the kind of capricious, arbitrary, nonsense American measurement that nowhere else in the world user understands. It doesn't make any sense. Celsius is is the way God wants you to think. It's I'm surprised you simple. don't like localized, like peculiar localized measurements of temperature. I would like it if every country had its own peculiar. I would like it if when you went to Canada, it was like how many toonies is it out there? And if you went to the Netherlands, it was like how many, well, they would just call it like degrees, but a little bit out they'd be like how many decades but it'd be weird is it? yeah it'd be weird like when i you're the you're a you're a local you're a locavore ed you think it's important for local places to have local culture and i'm surprised that you don't buy into the idea that every place should have its own localized unit of temperature measurement i think that it's in that that surely local- you can't approve the metric system no, the metric system I don't approve of, but the reason I don't approve of it is because the metric system is is the it's is the, the triumph of losers of in history. State. It's exactly. imposition it's of a bureaucratic state. It's the triumph of losers over history, and I don't right, approve exactly. of that. And we should be using imperial agree measurements. That insisting on a unified standard for temperature around the world is the same thing. I mean, okay, this no, is but like here's, saying no, that everyone should me, listen to American pockets on the radio instead of their own folk. Allow music. me, please. The, the everyone way, should dress from the gap instead of wearing their local national and ethnic costume. Okay, we're going to come back to what it is you think our local national and ethnic costume is, if not Gap khakis, in a minute. But oh, in America, uh, but in England, you should be wearing like um, well, I don't know, corduroys and flannels and sweaters and knit ties. And well, I, I am wearing a. <laughs> You're wearing almost all of those things. I'm right wearing now. almost all. I mean, my trousers are tweed, not corduroy. I was wearing corduroy yesterday, but yeah, the rest of it I'm pretty much wearing. My trousers right now are denim, which I suppose is the American costume. My trousers right now are a very fetching plaid I got for Christmas. I, I like plaid. You got plaid, yeah. tweed, pants for Christmas. Yeah, you got clothes for Christmas. Were you in trouble? No, I, I got them for myself for Christmas. I ordered. Oh, two you pairs bought of, them for Christmas. Yeah, I, I ordered myself two pairs of trousers in the Boxing Day sales because I could afford them that way. I I couldn't possibly afford nice trousers before Christmas. But you ordered them. I'm surprised you ordered them off the off the rack. So uh, there's speak. a place. There's a there's a place in Scotland that does excellent quality tweed wear, uh, and once they have your measurements, you you're you're okay. You're you know. My you, uh, denim trousers are made um, by the Levi's Levi Strauss and Company, specifically for sale at uh, Walmart near you. Uh huh. But what number? 
Levi's, do you a favor? No, I don't. Oh, I don't. Don't be ridiculous. Of course you do. You're you're not a five hundred one guy. You don't like the drain pipe. I honestly um, don't. I honestly don't know the answer to this question. That I'm just wearing the pants that I'm wearing. D- no, can, I'm sorry. Can we get you, back to the serious topic at hand, Celsius, please? Okay, <laughs> measurements should be intuitive. You that's that's the whole point. Is it's a lingua franca? It's how it's part of what makes us uh, separates us from the animals is we can communicate in common concepts. Celsius makes sense. It's a usable human standard because what are the thing? What's hot when water boils? A hundred degrees Celsius. What's cold when water freezes? Zero degrees Celsius. That makes sense. Fahrenheit. Nothing makes sense. It's just how hot is it out today? It's a hundred and thirty, uh, or maybe I don't know. But then the humidity and it's and how cold is it? It's I don't know thirty five or forty. But that's cold, even though it's a big number. And how? What about zero? Well, we never really go to zero. So what? We live within the band of like I don't know what twenty degrees Fahrenheit to one hundred and thirty. That's insanity. This doesn't make any sense. It's it's zero just, Fahrenheit does have an origin. I mean, it it doesn't come from nothing. I'm sure it comes from something, but it's 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 irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. The 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 bounds of a, of the temperatures in which we live our lives are between the freezing and boiling point of water. Zero degree, yeah, but that's not the bounds in which all people live their lives, and that's why I think this is no. A but very that's pre- the but Celsius you it's, it's observable thing. phenomena. It's the thing so that I Fahrenheit. can. No, it's not. So it's Fahrenheit. Zero uh, degrees Fahrenheit is uh is the freezing temperature of um, a mixture of ice water and sea salt, which represents which represented for Lewis Fahrenheit the place at which sea ice froze close to him. And beca- and that was relevant to the people in his uh, area who were seafarers. So he was actually trying to better address the things which were important to them, which was when sea ice would thing and would freeze and their boats it's wouldn't ridiculous. be able to. No, this is why leaders are, are stupid and iniquitous is because the leader of something is nothing at all. Like no one thinks but in fresh water is a not pint. Like, is the but, correct amount of beer for a single serving. Not American pints. Water, this is the other thing. Like, is American measurements everyone, also are wrong. Not everyone like American hangs out in fresh water. Insane. Not everyone hangs out in fresh water, is yeah, what that, I'm saying. Like for people yes, who it take does, to the sea. You, you drink fresh water, JD. You do. And it's important to know when that will be frozen, 32. But for people who take to the sea to make their living or to make war, um, it is important to know uh, when the sea ice will begin to freeze. No, that's nonsense because the sea ice only when the sea water will begin to freeze. Rather, you're in the you're in the forties of latitude there. That is that is a very 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 small percentage of the navigable seas in the world. That's, yeah, but have you ever gotten your ship stuck in frozen seawater? It'll be crushed, Ed. Do you want you're to see, tell me about you want, endurance? You're going to tell me about Ernst Shackleton. You're going to tell right? Really? Do you want to see those guys crushed because they didn't have a Fahrenheit? Thermometer sticking to the ocean. Having a thermometer. What are you? What are you talking about? That is. I don't know. Are you under the impression somehow that like you've got a thermometer, it's a magic weapon that you can wield well, no, from the deck of your you ship? Like sea. you can't you'll know freeze you sea ice. Sea. I have a thermometer. <clears throat> no, but you'll know whether you should take to the sea, my friend. You understand that you keep like that's not how it. Like when the water moves. It stops freezing even if it's at a lower temp. Like you understand that the stagnant water Boy, is- Boy, the water's real cold. We shouldn't we shouldn't take to the sea because we're in danger of being encased in ice. Seems like a reasonable thing if you want to get home to your wife and children. I'm just saying. This is this is absurd. This is madness. This makes no sense. Celsius is part of the bureaucratic metrification process of the world, which Celsius undermines is local culture. Kind of intuitive, easily understandable measurement. That is friendly to human nature and society. But the I same prefer way that a pint is the correct serving of beer. A, a mile a foot isn't a particularly is a intuitive. A foot is not a foot is not a foot for many people. A foot is not a foot for Mrs. Flynn, or a, a foot is less than a foot for me. No, but um, you wouldn't. Mrs. Flynn should not be saddled with the burden of measuring distances that require you to go several <laughs> feet. You should offer to do that for her. She has better things to do with her time. What kind of gentleman are you? Have you heard of a smoot? Is it? Related to the smoot of the smoot Holly Act? So the Harvard Bridge, as you probably know, crosses the um, Charles River to the MIT campus. I did not and, know that. I knew exactly none of those things. Okay. Um, Is that in, in Massachusetts? 50- yeah, near Boston. Okay. Uh, in the 50s, some uh, fraternity students decided that for a class project in which they had to estimate the measurement of the bridge using, you know, 
processes of estimating the measurement of a bridge. They would use not the unit of measure of a meter or the unit of measure of a yard or foot, but rather the unit of measure of a smoot, which was exactly the height of Oliver Smoot, one of their uh, one of their classmates. And so they, uh, in order to like do their project appropriately, they laid poor Oliver Smoot end to end. Uh, 364.4 times across the Harvard Bridge, across the Charles River, um, and marked each smoot uh, with uh, with with paint. And the fraternity to this day has kept up the custom of the smoot marking along the Charles River Bridge. So every uh, five feet and seven inches along the Harvard Bridge, you will have traversed one smoot. I think that is a lovely unit of measure with a nice sort of historical story to it. Yeah, you really don't get a very good education at Harvard, do you? I mean, if this is what counts at coursework, uh, that you know. But it was MIT. Oh, it was MIT. But that's supposed to be the good school, right? That's supposed to be the yeah, actual it's supposed smart to be the good go. school, right? And so they like decided that they would create. Rich, but. They decided that rather than you know estimate the un- the bridge by the unit of measure of a foot or a yard, they would estimate the unit of measure uh, according to um uh, according to their own unit of measure that they devised which is to say that of Oliver Smoot I don't I don't know what to say other than that sounds like a really Harvard story I look I should know Harvard is a perfectly nice school please all the Harvard alums don't write to me and tell me about when I was at Harvard you think there I, are Harvard alums listening to our show uh, they will tell you give them an give them an opportunity <laughs> and they will let you know <laughs> I I um I have a theory about Catholics, the Ivy League, and the sort of Newman Guide Colleges that I've been sort of trying to devise, and I've been thinking about this for a couple of years. Is like, a, is this a grand unifying theory? Well, it's not a grand unifying is this theory, like but Flynn's grand unifying theory of higher education in the United States. No, it's just something that I've, I think I've noticed about Catholics because I often ask myself, like, um, th- there is a difference. There's a difference in sort of flavor or. Um, disposition between Catholics. Like, why is it that what I, so one thing I often ask myself is like, why is it that some Catholics um, seem particularly interested in engaging in political spheres and other Catholics find their attention particularly focused on ecclesiastical spheres? Like that's, that becomes their, their main frame of reference. And you, you can see a difference among Catholic lay people that, you know, some who are like, we need to bring our Catholic faith into the public square and push back. And often that we need to bring our faith into the Catholic square, into the public square becomes we need to push back against people who would excise our Catholic faith from the public square. Um, and, and and that is a sort of flavor of Catholic in America that you will meet or that you'll see in public life or, or politics. People who say, we need to push back against the um, those who would excise Catholicism from the public square or who would say that Catholics, you know, uh, faithful Catholics shouldn't hold positions or that faithful Catholic positions don't have a place. And I think that's well and good. Then you'll find another sort of flavor of American Catholic who is far more likely to sort of um, have their focus. And and I'm not, there are not value judgments here. These are just observations that I have, who is far less likely to frame the engagement of Catholics in public life in terms of like, we need to push back against a secular or liberalizing agenda, but who sort of begins with the premise that everything is secular or liberal and sort of puts their focus on, we need a kind of a, 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 a prioritization of evangelization, a sort of individual personal evangelization rather than policy um, or cultural sort of um, pushback against secularizing or liberal trends. Do you see the two, the, yeah, the two no, categories? Yeah, I, I recognize the characters you're drawing, yeah. And I Which one I am I? Think, I'm curious. Well, you fit into the second, but in a particular way. And, I, and, and in order to discuss why I think you fit into the second in a particular way, I'd have to discuss elements of your personal and spiritual life that I don't think well, you I, want no, me to No, no. I was looking for just a snap judgment from you. I don't No, I don't think you want me to talk about your personal and spiritual life on the podcast because I think no. you'd be uncomfortable with that. I'd be very um, uncomfortable with that. <laughs> but I think that if you are a Catholic, a practicing Catholic, who has the primary sort of formational experience of having gone to a kind of Ivy League or elite college, then from the very beginning, you have actually had the experience of feeling like your views and modus operandi and way of living has no place here. And, you know, you've actually had the experience probably of being marginalized for your Catholicism or perceiving to have been marginalized for your Catholicism or your views being discounted in the classroom and those kinds of things. And I think that probably orients your worldview in a certain way. If you're the kind of Catholic, practicing Catholic who went to a sort of Newman-Guide Catholic college, a sort of Steubenville or Benedictine college or Christendom or something like that, uh, you probably were formed to to hear from those places, you know, the world beyond sort of the confines of this place is as a given, a sort of a priori is secular and we need to address that. But you don't have 
the sort of personal experience of having been marginalized for that because you opted out of that sort of mainstream uh, cultural experience and, and had your sort of young human formation in a place which was relatively um, segregated from that. And that sort of formational segregation probably orients you less towards we need to push back against it and more towards we just take as a given that it is and therefore we either create sort of parallel societies or when we talk about engagement with secular culture, it's more it's more about sort of individual or personal evangelization than it is about kind of reclaiming a, a Catholic space or something like that. It's hmm. just a theory that I have. It's, I think it's a good theory. Does that make sense? It does. I don't know how true it is, but it tends to bear out in my observation. Like if you talk to people about Catholicism and American culture, I, I tend to be right most of the time about sort of what their initial formation is of those two options um, relatively quickly. Hmm. I, I think you're probably right. That's good. And Newman Center kids, kids who went to a large state university but sort of hung out a lot at the Newman Center – Interestingly, in my observation, they tend to fall into that second category as well because their Newman Center experience was a kind of self-segregation in the context of a broader secularized culture, which they sort of took as a given. But there was a kind of a place in which they found themselves sort of deeply entrenched in a in, a, in an intensive experience of Catholic culture. Yeah, I, 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 I think that all tracks very well. All right. Well, anyway, so that's why Celsius is... Actually, talk about the March for Life, which we started talking about 15 <laughs> minutes ago before we decided to talk about Smoots and Celsius and Harvard. <laughs> That's why like Celsius is bad or good or whatever. What does a pair of tweed pants from Scotland cost? Uh, it, it costs about half a smoot. <laughs> you see, this is the problem with having completely subjective measurements, JD. Is I'd love to tell you, but I just, I, I lack, we lack a common cur currency, literally. We do, we do. We lack a common currency. Yeah. So I never, I, I don't, I suppose in that sense, deserve to know. Hoist okay. by your own petard. Have you ever been to the March for Life, Ed? I like uh, the March for Life a lot. I have been to the March for Life. I have been to the March for Life. I have attended the March for Life as a as a human, as a as a sort of autonomous individual joining the the corporate mass. I have a very nice scarf from the last time I attended the March for Life, just as a private citizen. Um, I have also been as a journalist. I I went on one occasion. In fact, I was I was at the March for Life uh, in. I guess 2019. But you weren't I, able to go this year because you had some obligations today, which is why the people yes, will not I, I was unable to get there life coverage. today. Um, and you were unable to get there today. I think it would be fair to say you're much better at that sort of coverage than I am. Um, Walk up and talk to people and... Yeah, the sort of talking to strangers in public. I do enjoy that kind of thing. You love that sort of stuff. And... Um, yeah. I'm I'm less good at it. I tend to be more self-contained. People um, right now, a lot of people right now are talking about, are asking the question why the March for Life should continue. They, I, I keep hearing people sort of saying, it seems to me to be very trendy right now to sort of say, well, the March for Life was about overturning Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade has been overturned with Dobbs. Why do we still have a national March for Life? Why do we have to have it in January when it's very cold? I have thoughts about that, but I'm curious what yours are. Oh, okay. So I haven't seen much of the why is there a March for Life at all discourse. Oh, um, I've seen a lot of that. I think that um, self-evidently there should continue to be a March for Life. I mean, I don't, it's no longer seems to me necessarily um, necessary to march on the Supreme Court. Congress might be a better uh, place to march upon, given that that is huh. where the, the, the sort of fight for life uh, at the political legal level has, has shifted. But uh, the state marches for life have cropped up all over the place, and I think they are good and they are right because also there's you know that is also where the matter is currently being litigated in in different ways with varying degrees of success. I think the public witness of the march for life or marches for life is very 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 important because and I wrote about this a little bit in my newsletter this morning or at least I alluded to it. You know we, the 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 presentation of pro life people campaigners, pro-life view holders in our society, in media, in popular culture is a demented caricature. You know, I was watching, I, I watched a TV show um, with my wife the other night. Uh, we watched the first episode of a show that someone had recommended to us. And like the first, like first out of the gate, first episode of first season is uh, the bad guys are pro-life terrorists who are, you know, blowing up the children of abortion doctors. 
because that's the, that's the way pro-life people think they you know they love babies so they love children like that that is the level of sort of popular culture misrepresentation of the entire cause for life and it only yeah. it gets slightly less cartoonish but no less sinister and no less deliberately inaccurate at the level of quote unquote journalism and media in most places that there is no political view that is more re- misrepresented and maligned in american national discourse i would argue than pro life that you're dismissed as a crank as a fanatic as a sort of crypto integralist trying to foist your you know caesar or papist dictatorship on everyone in the country you know the idea that everyone who's pro life is is a sort of christian fundamentalist when in fact there are lots of atheist pro life people because you yeah. know the science um all of that and the most effective means we have of combating that nonsense is making the unignorable presence felt in the streets of sane, rational, normal, loving people who just give the lie to all of that. And the only way you can do it is to make a big crowd and say, here we are. And no, we're not crazy fringe people. In fact, last poll I read, 72% of people in this country were pretty open to the idea of um, fetal heartbeat loss. So, you know, we're, it's not a fringe opinion. I mean, you can make the, you know, you can do whatever polls say that overwhelmingly Americans say there should be some kind of legal abortions. Like, yeah, but if you actually drill down into what it is, they think they, they basically think that abortion should be illegal in like 99% of cases. Um, and, and the way you do that is you say, no, we're here, we're here, not going away. We're not going to be shamed out of our views or, you know, made to feel embarrassed about the fact that we don't think the deliberate taking of innocent human life in the womb is anything other than barbaric. Um, I, I think it's vitally important. I have I, I started this whole thing off by saying I haven't seen much of the why is there a pro-life, why is there a march for life at all discourse. I have seen a lot of why is there a march for life in January when Roe is dead discourse. And I am a little open to that. I, I feel like there are now other anniversaries that suggest themselves that could be marked. Um, and as you have found with your with your flights and things. Um, air travel or even bus travel from all over the country to Washington, D.C. in January can be a, a moderately dicey affair. So I I see the case for uh, perhaps picking another time of the year, but I don't make those decisions and I'm not privy to those conversations. I would say one of the interesting things about the March for Life is there is a very broad spectrum of people who are there. So there are indeed some very fringy folks there. And th- there's something to that. There's something to sort of Seeing that and there was about, a very, okay, I mean, I, well, okay. If we want to have that conversation, we can. I think that there, the the one March for Life I went to as a journalist, uh, a, a certain former president um, tossed up and and addressed the crowd, and it was a very political speaker lineup, and it was very. Oh, yeah. So that's another thing. So one thing is that the March for Life has a political has long had a political element to it, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But what I mean is. At every March for Life I've ever been to, someone has shouted at me that I'm going to go to hell for being Catholic or, um, you know, there are sort of a lot of end timers there and things like that. And I think that's good, I too. I don't like understand this, why end timers turn up to things. <laughs> what should they be doing? Well, they like, want people to repent before the before the coming judgment. No, but the people who are like the world's about it's to end, you ask them like actually. how many people, are, you know, get to, like this, the end timers are also the ones who are always like, there's only 144,000 tickets, buddy. It's like, mm, well, that, and, and how many that, of those seats on the bus uh, have I've already never been understood evangelizing. If you do think that there's a very limited number of people who will be saved, I've never understood evangelizing, right? Or it's like, hey, I have some very important information to tell you. And I will tell you for $50,000, right? I mean, if you think that the number of, of, of seats to heaven are limited, you would just, your whole your whole marketing approach would be very different. You, you got to okay. think. But there are fringy people at the March for Life. And I think that, I, I think, um, in addition to many, many good-hearted and earnest people, and I think there's something good about that too, like learning, okay, uh, in this coalition of people who care about the unborn are a broad spectrum of people, some of whom I don't agree with about anything else. But I can appreciate that they care about this and I can pray for them and sort of wish them the best and perhaps they'll be wildly entertaining. And and I can accept that there are there is a way in which um, my pro-life convictions seem to, you know, the world to make me um, a fringy person myself. And so I can sort of accept that and say it's okay. If I'm perceived as a fringy person, I, I'm 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 comfortable with that. 
I, I accept that about myself. Like this conviction is where it's sort of holding. So, um, so I'll say that now you, you made the point about like political speeches and stuff like that. The March for Life has long had a strong political element because, um, it is ecumenical or even interreligious, um, or, or, you know, interreligious plus a religious and, you know, political, the political element of ending abortion, which is hugely important, has been a consistent part of it. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think people say it gets too political, and I understand that. To another extent, it is also true that as Catholics, the church says that we should be working towards an end to legal protection for abortion, and we have to hold that it, that abortion should be illegal, and we can't simply hold that abortion is wrong, but shouldn't be illegal. I mean, you and I have done explainers on what the church has actually said about this in recent decades and these kinds of things. But there is a way in which the thing can become nakedly partisan if, it, if that, people That's what careful. I was going to say, is the, the March for Life is is a political event, and it should be a political event as long as abortion is a political issue, but there's a difference between being political and being partisan. And I think for quite a bit of time during the Trump administration, it got rather partisan, and that was a problem. Yeah. The speaker lineup became very, very one-sided. And I mean, from what I understand, part of that was it became self-selecting, that if you're going to have the Trumps, you're not going to get anyone from the other side to share a platform with them. And I think- um, you know, that is, that was a, that was an issue. That was a problem they had. And, you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to the bind that you can find yourself in at the time of, you know, if the president of the United States says he wants to come along, are you really going to tell him no, especially if he happens to be a lunatic? Um, you know, I get all that. Uh, but yeah. I think it was, I think those four years were a difficult time yeah. for the March to find the balance and to get it right. And I don't think they'd always did that perfectly or elegantly. And I think they know that. And I think you've seen a marked change in the last couple of years as a result of that. I think it was whatever the discomforts of the time, I think it was definitely a, a positive learning experience. And yeah. the march has been better for it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but what I was going to say is I do think it would be maybe not possible. You know, the, the March for Life is not a, a Catholic event as such. Um, but I do think it would be cool. You know, you said maybe the thing should end at Congress. As I wrote this week, I think it would be cool if the thing ended at the National Shrine of the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Um, you know, I think the most important elements of the March for Life are the pilgrimage elements of it. And had I my druthers, I would love to see the pilgrim the the the, the notion of the March for Life being a pilgrimage for life increase. That that now we are walking in a certain way that pours out the blood of Christ on the soil. Um, in our steps, in the way that John Paul talks about in Evangelium Vitae, that, that, that we wish for this to be sort of sanctifying and reclaiming of America, or or that we wish for this pilgrimage to be a sort of Via Dolorosa for life or something like that. Again, I don't know how practical that is because it's not a Catholic event, qua Catholic event. Well, you see how practical that would be how desirable efficacious. is it? I mean, do you really want the end of dayers people in our nice basilica, do you really want the guy with the? <laughs> yes, I do. I want everybody in our basilica. Go to hell. I yeah, I do. I do want him in our basilica. Okay. And and now, the papists go to hell people and the end times guy. If they approach a priest together, they could receive a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can't, JD. <laughs> That's how I read the 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 uh, the declaration, Edward. <laughs> All this right. isn't Germany. We will be back next week. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon in a lovely pair of tweed plaid trousers. 